Hello everyone, I'm glad you could join us. I'm Jim Boge and you're listening to Music in My Shoes. I'm thrilled to be here and as a matter of fact, that was Vic Thrill kicking off episode one, Pilot Part One. Yes, that is the name of the show, that is the name of the episode, that is where we are today. All right, so what is Music in My Shoes? It's really just me talking about songs, bands, concerts from the past, the present, the future, from my point of view, or as I say, the music in my shoes. I'm just a fan of music. I haven't been to the most concerts. I don't have the biggest music collection, and I don't know the most about music history. Again, I'm just a fan of music. Again, a fan of music. I want each show to be entertaining, and maybe you will learn something new or remember something old. To get us started off with here in the month of October, I'm going to go back to 1981 when U2 released an album called October. Uh, I thought that would be a great place to start with, uh, with our theme here of us really starting, getting going here with Music in My Shoes. And some of these songs are my early favorite U2 songs. Um, Gloria, I Fall Down, I Threw a Brick Through a Window, Fire, Tomorrow, and of course the song October. If you haven't listened to the album before, or if it's been a real long time since you listened to it, I recommend listening to it. It is great, and to see what U2 was like when they first started back in the early days is really a treat. In uh, 1983, 40 years ago, they released their next album after October called War. And that album was one of those albums when I was in high school, we would go to a party and people would put that album on. You would listen to the album side A all the way through and side B all the way through. Pretty much before that, we would just play kind of songs or we would play cassettes where we'd make mixtapes. But every party in 1983, at some point, you were playing war and listening to it. Usually, wherever the speaker was coming out of someone's window, I was close by there with my foot up against the wall singing the songs because I thought war was just unbelievable. Again, some of the songs from that that time, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, Seconds, which you don't hear enough of on the radio, that's a great song. We all know New Year's Day, uh, Like a Song, Two Hearts Beat as One, Surrender, and one of my all-time favorite songs, 40, which they closed their shows with many, many years in a spectacular way. Great, great, great song. Not so much on the War album as it is on live versions. If you can hear it on um, uh, Live at Red Rocks, from 1983, that's probably the best version. You can look at that on YouTube. They do fantastic. Uh, they also have a good version from uh, 1987 at Madison Square Garden on uh, the anniversary deluxe edition of the Joshua Tree. Um, hey, let's stay with you two and go to Rattle and Hum, which is 35 years old this month. Unfortunately, I think this is a very uneven album. Um, it mixed studio and live tracks. It does have some good songs. You know, we all know Desire, Angel of Harlem. Uh, love Rescue Me is a great song. When Love Comes to Town and All I Want is You. But in the end, it just doesn't gel. Um, 
I think if they had just released it as studio tracks, it would have been fantastic. So Love Rescue Me was actually written by Bob Dylan, and he actually sang the original version of it, but he didn't want you two to release it because of his commitments to the Traveling Wilburys at the time. So you two recorded it with them doing the vocals. Bob does the background. If you listen to the song, you can definitely tell Bob Dylan is singing on it. Um, but they do a great version. They did a Jamaica Relief Fund concert. And with that, they had uh, Keith Richards and Ziggy Marley join them, which is absolutely fantastic. If you get a chance, check that out. Great song. I know it's not super popular, but it's one of their best songs that they've ever done. When Love Comes to Town, a song that they do with B.B. King. You got to love B.B. King for all the things that he's done. Great guy, great musician. Uh, He opened up for the Rolling Stones in 1969 and is on the uh, Get Your Yaya's Out Deluxe Edition. I know that's totally off topic, but if you get a chance, get that. Great album, great album. All right, so I'm going to talk about you two one more time. Um, So they are in the beginning of a residency at the Sphere, which is located just off the Vegas Strip. This arena costs over $2 billion to construct. It's round like a globe. It has almost 19,000 seats. Basically a bare stage with the band and their instruments. But the wraparound interior is all LED screen. The walls, the ceilings are in effect all part of the experience. And I kind of think it's like being in a real snow globe without the snow. If you haven't seen it, it's really cool. Take a look at it. Outdoors, they actually light up the outside of the sphere. They make it look like an eyeball looking around in all kinds of directions. It's very lifelike. Really cool experience. Unfortunately, what's it going to be like once you see that show and you go back to the way normal stage shows are? Again, the stage is so bare minimum. I've never seen a show with that little amount of equipment on it. But they make up for it for everything that you're watching around as they play. And they actually sound really good. They've been doing the Uktung Baby uh, album and then playing some B-sides along with some other songs. Bono definitely sounds good. I am surprised at how well he sounds, but hey, more power to him. That's great to hear. All right. We're going to move off of you two, if that's okay. Again, this is October. We're going to move over to Leonard Skinner, who on October 20th, 1977, the band was flying from Greenville, South Carolina to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, for they had a show the next night at LSU. Unfortunately, their plane crashed in Mississippi. Lost in the crash was Ronnie Van Zant on vocals, Steve Gaines, the guitarist, his sister Cassie Gaines, a backup singer, along with an assistant road manager, the pilot, and the co-pilot. The rest of the band and road crew were all injured seriously. Leonard Skinner was my introduction to Southern Rock. Ronnie's voice... The Triple Guitars, Sweet Home Alabama, What's Your Name, What More Could You Ask For? I mean, those songs are great, and any time that you hear a song and you hear Ronnie's voice, you know that it's Leonard Skinner. First album is celebrating its 50th anniversary, came out in August of 19... 
73. Name of it was Pronounce Leonard Skinnerd. Had Gimme Three Steps, Tuesday's Gone, Simple Man, and Freebird. What a debut album, if anything. And I believe it was recorded in Doraville right here in Georgia at a small studio that is no longer there, but that's a pretty cool fact. So what shows did I go to this summer? I'm glad that you asked, because I did want to tell you. So, Memorial Day weekend, I saw Dead & Company in Atlanta. Dead & Company is an offshoot of the Grateful Dead with original members Bob Weir and Mickey Hart. John Mayer on lead guitar and sharing vocals with Bob. I saw them three times in three cities, and of the 47 songs they played during these three shows, they only played six songs twice. At no time did they play any one song at all three shows. It's one of the reasons I started to like The Grateful Dead, because they would play stuff and you never knew what you were going to hear until they actually started playing it. The Cure. I got to see The Cure this summer. So The Cure, I saw them Madison Square Garden, and I originally saw them in 1986 at the Pier in New York City. So the Pier used to be a, a music venue that was located next to the USS Intrepid Aircraft Carrier Museum. And on it, it would had a Concorde plane, if you remember, you know, the original supersonic transport planes, several other aircrafts. And it was pretty cool to be at a show and look to your side and you could see this uh, right next to you. So... If I remember correctly, um, that was when Robert Smith decided he was going to cut all his hair off. He had like a a crew cut, looked totally different. 10,000 maniacs, who most people didn't even know in 1986, opened up for them. It was a good show, but it was kind of loud, and it was a bit distorted. I go to see them in 1987, and it was an enclosed arena, And you want to talk about loud to where it was totally distorted, that was the show. And it was to the point that it was really difficult to understand anything. It almost hurt to to listen to it. But I gave it everything I could and decided at the end of the show I wasn't going to go see The Cure anymore. I wasn't going to invest any money. It probably only cost me about... $20 to go see them as compared to what concert tickets are today. But I thought that, you know what, I'm going to stay away from it. Fast forward, you know, to 2023, some friends are going to go see The Cure. I decide, hey, you know what, I'm going to give them another shot. Probably the biggest reason is that Robert Smith wanted to keep ticket prices cheap. I sat on the side of the stage for $79 a ticket. I can't believe that's how little that I paid. So we went to the show, and it started beforehand. We hung out at a place called Local NYC, which is located right across the street from Madison Square Garden. And we went to the rooftop. A bunch of friends, some family came, and we hung out there, you know, from early afternoon until showtime. And it became more than a show. It just came, became like an event. And it was fun seeing all these people and just talking and Last time we saw The Cure and what we thought they were going to open up with. Kind of like what it was like when I was a young kid, when I was a teenager and so forth. So they played A Forest, which is one of their early songs that sounded 
absolutely fantastic. I couldn't believe how good it still sounded. A lot of times when I go see bands, some of their early stuff when they play them, they kind of change the tempo, they kind of change the key, they change something about it and it's not the same. This was fantastic. I was really excited that uh, they kept it that way. Dead and Company, we're back to them. So I saw The Cure on a Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden. I got to see them that following Thursday night at City Field in New York City, and then on the Saturday after at Fenway Park in Boston. The Fenway Park show was fantastic. I'd never been to Fenway before. We sat right uh, above the home dugout, and the show was probably the best Dead & Company show that I've ever seen. They bust out some songs that I've never seen them play live before, which I thought was, you know, all the good reasons to travel to Boston to go see a band. That's what you want. You want when you're spending a bunch of money and you're going somewhere that they're going to do something different. They played Here Comes Sunshine, and I just thought that was fantastic. Okay, so while we're still talking about Dead & Company, I know a bunch of people are saying they're not the Grateful Dead. And I will be the first to tell you, no, they are not the Grateful Dead. After Jerry Garcia passed away in 1995, I didn't think that I'd ever get to see them again. Well, I haven't. But I did get to see Dead & Company. I finally broke down in 2019 to go see them and just said, let me give them a chance. Knowing that they're a totally different band. They play the song slower They play them a little different. John Mayer plays them in the John Mayer way. But I found that I started to appreciate it. And at the same time, I miss going to see Bob Weir. I miss going to see Mickey Hart. I miss going to see Bill Kreutzmann. And to see them on stage, even though they had some different players, O'Teal Burbridge, he played with uh, Bruce Hampton and the Aquarium Rescue Unit as well as with the Allman Brothers Band, and then also Jeff Trementi, who had played with uh, Bob Weir in Rat Dog, as well as some different incarnations of Grateful Dead-type stuff. And then Jay Lane, who was actually a drummer in Primus, of all bands, who left so that he could do stuff with uh, Bob Weir in, in Rat Dog, as well as doing the Dead & Company stuff. He also plays with Bob Weir and Bob Weir's solo band, Bob Weir and the Wolf Brothers. So I am not saying that they're the Grateful Dead. They are not. But I missed the music for a long time, and I'm glad I gave it a chance. It's something different, and I love it. Berlin, Howard Jones, and uh, Culture Club. Got to see them. Um, I've seen Berlin and Howard Jones a couple of times. Matter of fact, I saw Howard Jones at the pier that I mentioned earlier back in 1985. Went to the show, got all the way up to the front, and the amps, the speakers, were playing the music so loud that in my left ear, it was buzzing for days after. And to this day, I still struggle hearing out of that ear. And I always can remember where it was that I first started having the issues. And it was back in June 1985 at the pier uh, going to see Howard Jones. And then finally in September, saw the Psychedelic Furs who open up for Squeeze. This was at the Stone Pony Summer Stage in Asbury Park, New Jersey. 
I'd never been to the Stone Pony before. It was really cool going there. Having the opportunity to see where Bruce and Bon Jovi and Southside Johnny got their start in a place that is super duper small that you would not expect that that was an actual club and how people would be able to play there. It does not hold many people at all. But it was really cool to be standing there to have a, a piece of history all around you of, of music. Whether you like Bruce or not, he is definitely you know someone that people love. And that's what I like. I like being in places or hearing about things, even if I don't particularly like them or know about them. I just think that it's cool. So I really enjoyed doing that. And then we had a fantastic show with the Psychedelic Furs and Squeeze. Psychedelic Furs, Richard Butler, who's always had that raspy voice, it's worked out in his favor because he still has that raspy voice and you can't tell that he's aging whatsoever because it still sounds the same. Squeeze sound fantastic. Glenn Tilbrook still can play the guitar well, still sounds, you know, like he can hit all the notes. And they have definitely been one of my favorite bands of all time. I remember being in 11th grade and 12th grade with my friends and listening to Squeeze. We would hang out and everybody would know the songs and we'd all be singing them. And it was just fun times, whether it was a Friday or a Saturday night or so. And to be able to continue to go see them as I am definitely well past the uh, high school age is, uh, is great. And I hope to continue to go see them as uh, time goes on. So an interesting fact, all right, David McCallum, he passed away in September. And I know many of you are saying, who's David McCallum? So David McCallum played the chief medical examiner on NCIS, and his name was Ducky on the show. Some of you may remember him. He was the guy in The Man from Uncle, which was a TV show back in the 60s. But what I didn't know and what I learned recently is that he had four instrumental albums out in the 60s. And one song from 1967... 67... And one song from 1967 called The Edge is what was sampled by Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg for the song, The Next Episode. It's unbelievable that you could take something from 1967, that this person puts out this instrumental album, and they take the beginning of it, and then they make a song that they just keep sampling that over and over and over and have a huge hit by the fact that I've never heard of this before kind of amazes me, but I thought that was a great, uh, interesting fact that I would share with everyone. He's also the voice on the Disney animated TV show, The Replacements, if you did not know. And speaking of The Replacements, it's time for recent album releases. Jimmy, do you want to join me? Sure thing. Hey, this is Jimmy Guthrie. He's the owner of Arcade 160 Studios here in Atlanta, Georgia. And the person that is responsible for all the sounds that you're hearing now. And I thought I'd ask him if he'd join us, talk about some of the recent releases. Jimmy, why don't we start off with Tim, the Let It Bleed edition by The Replacements. So yeah. 
What are your thoughts on that? I, I'm a huge Replacements fan. I've, I love that album. It's probably my favorite Replacements album. Maybe Pleased to Meet Me. but uh, and, and so I've always, as an engineer, listened to it with a little bit of a critical ear that like the snare sound is kind of kind of 80s like over compressed and every snare hit sounds exactly the same and uh you know people have complained like the the sounds don't sound like they're coming from the same room the vocals seem separated from the music bed uh there's lots of digital reverb added to them and so i was i was excited to hear what the new mix sounded like and it's Ed, um, it's not Ed Stasium, right? Yeah, it's Ed yeah, Stasium. It is, it is Ed Stasium. Yeah, so Ed Stasium's doing it, and, and he engineered the first three or four Ramones albums, you know, and the guy that produced them was Tommy Ardelli, Tommy Ramone, and he's the one that originally produced Tim. So it's like they're swapping roles. He's coming in to clean up what Tommy did. And if you're wondering what I thought, at first, I'm like, wow, this sounds great. And I'm listening to Hold My Life, and I'm like, it sounds, you know, I'm hearing things I never heard before. The bass sounds a lot fuller. The snare sounds natural. And then I'm just like, it just doesn't, it doesn't give me the feeling that the old one did, though, you know? And it, maybe it's because it's tied in with all my memories. I've heard that record a thousand times. But it just, I... I I still prefer the old one with all of its flaws. You know, it sounds like that sounds like Tim to me. It's a record. It's got a certain sound and cleaning it up doesn't make it better in my opinion. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because when I first heard it was coming out, I was kind of excited. I listened to it and I was like, yeah, this is cool. It definitely sounds like they're in the same room. The bass by far is very, very different but yeah. in the end, it's not the replacements to me. I think yeah. what I liked about the replacements is the way that that album was. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you get to the re- later replacements, you know, Don't Tell a Soul, to me, it's a little too polished. I mean, I like it, but it's it's more like a Paul Westerberg solo album yep. than it is a replacements album. Mm-hmm. I listened to Tim... I think I listened to it both versions twice last night because I knew that we were going to talk about this right. just to see what I thought. When you little, listen to Little Mascara, they sound totally different when they both start and so forth. Mm-hmm. And while I kind of like that full sound, I really go back to the original. And again, mm-hmm. that's what I think made me like the replacements. And in all honesty, why it made a lot of people not like them. Yeah, you yeah, know? that's right. And it's like something that maybe if you didn't grow up in the 80s or you weren't around in the 80s, you don't understand, is that there was a very, very stark difference between what was on the radio and what was, you know, it wasn't even called alternative music necessarily back then, but it was like, yeah, there was this stuff that was, a, it was college rock was what it would get called a lot. And and you didn't you kind of liked one or the other and a lot of people thought the replacements were just trash and as replacements fans we were happy to have those people not around you know <laughs> and and i agree with you you know it's funny you talk about college rock because they have the song left of the dial which is a song about where they normally would find themselves as they went town to town on college rock radio stations which yeah. would be the lower um uh fm frequencies and so forth so, I agree with you 
I wish that I could fully embrace it, but at this point, I find myself just going back. Um, some of the other songs, if you don't know, on the album are um, uh, Kiss Me on the Bus. Um, we talked about Little Mascara. We d- talked about um, Left of the Dial. There's also uh, Bastards of Young. I thought Bastards of Young sound was probably the best of of the mixes. I was like, okay, this still kind of sounds like the same song and, and gives me gives me the feeling that the old mix did, but um, yeah. The Bastards of Young, I liked his scream in the beginning of the song. I thought that was much better. Like, he really pulled that out and sounded good. Threw some other guitar parts that you didn't hear, little mm-hmm. guitar things. So I thought that that was kind of cool. Um, but as a whole... I would go with the original. So why did they name it Let It Bleed Edition? Well, I'm going to tell you that, all right? So the Mm. reason that that happened is that their previous album was called Let It Be, and they couldn't come up with a name for it. So they said the next song that comes on the radio, that's the song that uh, we're going to use, and that will be the title of our next album. Beatles, all of a sudden, Let It Be comes on. They're like, it's Let It Be. And they said, we're going to name our next album... Let it bleed after the Rolling Stones album because nothing is sacred. It's just music. Mm-hmm. So they ended up not calling it Let It Bleed. Um, and they were naming some stuff. And then I think Paul Westerberg said, Tim. And they're like, Yeah, that's it. That sounds like a great album. Let's just call it that. But that's why they call it the Let It Bleed edition because I know a bunch of people have said to me, Why Let It Bleed? I don't understand that. So it wasn't named after like a friend named Tim or anything like that? That's not what they said. <laughs> I, you know, I looked and I read, I did a lot of research, looked into it, but really it was, they were together and he just kind of yelled out Tim and they were all like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so moving along, we're going to go to Green Day, Dookie, the 30th anniversary album just came out. So originally it was released in February, 1994. I guess they decided to get a, you know, break up on the uh, the holiday season and, and release it early. So it has a bunch of demos. It's got two live shows, one of them uh, including the 1994 Woodstock appearance. Jimmy, your thoughts on that? Oh, man, you uh, you turned me on to the Woodstock part of that because I'd listened to the, the demos that are on there. Those are fantastic. But uh, that Woodstock 94 performance is so fun to listen to. Yeah, I love it. it really is. And I, you know, I actually recorded it on cassette when they played it. They had played, I was listening to 99X here in Atlanta at the time, and they played a bunch of the songs. And I had my cassette recorder and recorded that. And I listened to it for, for quite some time. But, you know, as time goes on, you lose cassettes and you don't know where your tape deck is and so forth. But when you listen to it, it's just fun. And, you know, when they start throwing you know mud the the people the fans and <laughs> calling fans out and it i just thought it was just so fun to me that's the day that green day became green day they were a lot of fun yeah. back then oh and and like the difference between billy joe today you know he's a dad he's a he's a consummate performer and everything back then he he was very much just a little punk rocker kid and he was ragging on the hippies and the fake punk rockers and everything in the audience he was very he he had a lot of contempt in his uh, voice it was fun to hear yes yes he did and you know for those of you who don't remember what songs uh longview basket case she when i come around 
an outtake of Tired of Waiting for You, which is originally a Kinks song. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. For those of you who don't know the Kinks, so many bands, when they first were coming up in Britain, they were learning songs by the Kinks and they were playing them. Um, the Jam, The Who, uh, David Bowie, you know, Green Day, as I mentioned, so many bands would play the Kinks. So if you get a chance, listen to some Kinks uh, as well. So, Jimmy, I know they have a bunch of demos on there. They have four-track demos. They have cassette demos. What did you think of those? I loved them. I thought, like, that was the coolest thing on the album to me. I, I love those demos. The uh, I'd like to hear the story behind them, too. Like, is is that the full band doing all those? Is that Billy Joe in his bedroom? Uh, definitely some of them sound a lot like the record, so they definitely had the whole band doing them. But then there's Basket Case, uh, demo that the lyrics are totally different. It's like a story. It's not that angsty, you know, uh, self-loathing type of a lyric that you've got in the in what came on the album. So, yeah, I, I'm just like fascinated with those demos. Yeah, they're they're really good. Again, I go back to the Woodstock '94, and I think it's because. Nothing to do with music in my mind. I was just looking to see, was Woodstock 94 available because I wanted to listen to it, and I didn't find it, and then all of a sudden they released this, and lo and behold, there's Woodstock 94. I like to go back after not listening to something for so long, listen to it. Does it sound as good as it did at the time? Do I get the same feelings that I did when I first heard it? And back in in summer 94 when I was listening to it, I got those feelings when I was listening to now in full stereo. Again, I had this little cheap cassette deck that I was listening to, you know, from a radio uh, broadcast. But this was really, really fun, and and I enjoyed it, and I'm really glad that they put that out. So the first time I ever heard Green Day, I was driving in my car up on Jimmy Carter Boulevard in 1994, and I thought it was the Buzzcocks. I heard Welcome to Paradise on, on 99X. And I'm like, how have I not heard this Buzzcocks song? And so then I'm waiting for them to back announce it after, and they didn't. And I literally pull over at a gas station, go to a phone booth, which you had to do because you didn't have a friggin' cell phone then, and call 99X to find out what the band was. And uh, went out and got the CD that day. That's a great story. For those of you who don't know the Buzzcocks, they were led by Pete Shelley, and they had a bunch of hits uh, back in the day. At least I consider them hits. I don't think most of America considers them hits. I think they were hits. hits in England, but like we didn't get them over here unless you right. bought the import. Yes, and, and you're right. You had to buy the import. But they had um, one song, Ever Fallen in Love, and that song was actually done by Fine Young Cannibals that did a much slower version, but I thought it was pretty cool. I liked it. Yeah. I liked the way that they had done it. Um, but they are a real good group. If you look at them, listen to some, you know, early punk, but very poppy, um, very, you know, right on with how it's going to be and so forth. Definitely look to uh, Pete Shelley and the Buzzcocks. So I had one more, and I'm not even sure if you've heard the song yet, but... Libertines have a new single out, Run, Run, Run. It's from a forthcoming album that's coming out in March of 2024. And that's going to be their first album since 2015. I'm going to just say, I believe this is their most catchy pop song that they've had. It still sounds like the Libertines, and it still sounds, you know, Brit pop. 
But have you heard it? And if you have, what do you think? Yeah, I have heard it. It's it's fantastic. It makes me excited for uh, for the new album. Yeah. Yeah. The um, for those of you who are not familiar with the Libertines, Pete Doherty's in the band. He definitely has. Uh, you know, well-documented uh, for years of some of the troubles that he's had and so forth. He was also in Baby Shambles. Uh, he was just in another band that he was running. I can't remember the name uh, off the top of my head. So there's a lot of talent. But the other guy in the band, Carl Barat, who also does guitar and lead vocals, is fantastic. And I think when you get both him and Pete Doherty together, they can make some really good music. Unfortunately, they don't come over to America, some visa issues and so forth, but they are a good band. So if you haven't heard them before, this is a good time to to pick them up and listen to them. Run, run, run by the Libertines. Yeah, it's a fun song. Well, that's it for this episode of Music in My Shoes. I'd like to thank you, Jimmy, for not only being the owner of Arcade 160 Studios and having us down here, but joining us for that uh, recent album release uh little segment that we had it was so fun jim thanks oh you're welcome hey links to some of the things i spoke about will be in the show notes i'd like to thank jennifer patrick for the idea of hosting a podcast because if it wasn't for her even suggesting it i would not be here today doing it we talked about jimmy guthrie again thank you and then also chris cassidy and robert klaus for their behind the scenes help putting the podcast together and of course Vic Thrill for our podcast music. Until next time, thank you, be safe, we'll talk soon. Music